Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that relishes all sorts of information and experiences from the world of motoring and transport. I'm David Brown, and in this program we have news stories including YouTube and Netflix will soon be coming to Tesla screens, so says Elon Musk. We have an interview with the CEO of JetCharge, a company that produces products and systems to charge electric vehicles. What he says will blow your mind. We talk to the organiser of the Shannon's Classic, which has a huge number of great cars on display. We have five motoring minutes and Brian Smith joins us once again for some quirky news. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or our Facebook site is Overdrive City. So let's start the program with the news. Toyota Australia faces class action over claims Hilux and Prado have faulty diesel filters. A class action filed in the Federal Court in Canberra could relate to 250,000 owners nationwide. Problems with diesel engines in the top-selling Hilux have been around for well over a year. The problem is associated with dust getting into the engine and a poor functioning filter, which have led to high fuel consumption and pollution and a loss of power. Toyota has not issued a recall, but has said that it is working with customers. Lawyers alleged Toyota Australia has been installing faulty diesel particulate filters in its Hilux, Fortuna and Prado diesel vehicles sold from October 2015 to July 2019. Toyota Australia said that it is unable to comment as this matter is now before the courts. UK auto production dropped by 20% in the first half of the year and investment plunged 70% as carmakers spent money on Brexit contingency plans instead of the technology needed to help reshape the global industry. The CEO of the UK Society of Motor Manufacturers has issued a stark warning to Britain's new Prime Minister Boris Johnson. Leaving the European Union without a deal on the 31st of October could bring an end to the British car industry. The UK automotive industry is highly integrated with Europe and a no-deal Brexit would result in new tariffs and disruption that would threaten production. Europe currently takes 57% of British car exports. The cuts have already started. Honda, Nissan and Ford have all announced that they plan to close plants in the UK or won't be going ahead with plans to build new factories. The industry has been bolstered by one good piece of news – Jaguar Land Rover has announced that it plans to make a new range of electric vehicles in Britain. But that won't be enough to save the British motor industry from a no-deal Brexit. The Australian company Tritium, which has a major manufacturing plant in Queensland, has signed a deal with Box Energy to be the sole supplier for Drive Energy, a nationwide electric vehicle charging network in the UK. Drive Energy is expected to build 2,500 charging locations by 2025, with at least 100 sites live by the end of January 2020. The network will be a mix of public and private charging solutions. As part of the deal, Tritium will supply 24x7 support for the network, including on-site support. 
Each charger features a modem which is constantly transmitting data to Tritium support engineers, who can be contacted by phone. The high-performance 2.3-litre Mustang will join the Ford Australia lineup in February 2020. The 2020 model will see a more potent turbocharged model, reflecting Australians' customers' calls for a unique performance version, alongside the 5-litre V8 Mustang GT. The 2.3-litre Mustang will be offered in both fastback and convertible body styles, and is distinguished by a series of unique visual elements, beginning with a new front grille. The Mustang includes a 5-year, unlimited kilometre factory warranty with Ford service benefits, including the Ford Loan Car Program, complimentary map updates, and motoring club membership for eligible customers. Madrid's new administration might already be regretting its promise to cancel the city centre's car ban. When the city's new coalition came to power, one of its first promises was to scrap the laws that had seen almost all cars disappear from inner Madrid. Not just from major roads, but from side streets as well. As it turns out, the measure isn't as popular as politicians thought. Thousands recently took to the streets to protest. 10,000 people according to the Madrid state government, but 60,000 people according to organisers. Now the coalition is backpedalling. Madrid City Hall is pausing its plans to repeal the law, and it's likely that cancelling the city's car ban may be abandoned for good. With surround sound systems and comfy seats, cars may soon become mobile cinemas, at least according to Elon Musk. Tesla's CEO recently tweeted that the company's vehicles will soon be sporting live streaming of YouTube and Netflix video when the car is stopped. The actual date wasn't disclosed. Perhaps in maybe more exciting news, once the vehicles become fully legally autonomous, these videos will keep playing, even when the car is moving. And that has been the news. We've certainly seen a huge increase in Australians using ride-sharing services like Uber in recent years. But isn't being ferried around in someone else's car just as problematic for traffic issues? It's not really public transport, is it? David Brown says Uber and the like fall somewhere in between private car use and public transport. In a technical paper titled Lies, Damn Lies and Autonomous Vehicles, Professor Graham Curry from Monash University began by saying, it seems to me there's a gigantic lot of nonsense discussed about the future of transport. He turned this paper into a passionate and fiery keynote address at the Australian Institute of Traffic Planning and Management's National Conference. Services such as Uber and Lyft have been described as ride-sharing, with the prediction that more people in every car will replace public transport. His research proves otherwise. In the great majority of cases, it is only one passenger per car which fails to give the efficiencies of public transport. This is Overdrive across Australia. At the recent launch of the Nissan all-electric Leaf motor vehicle, you might have expected all the talk to be about how the car travels on the road and the features associated with making the driver and passengers safe and comfortable. There was that, but there was also considerable talk about operating costs, environment, technology and even property. The Nissan Leaf has the potential for bi-directional charging that is used in Europe but not yet approved here in Australia. This means I could run my house off the car battery. 
The potential changes this could bring about are enormous. Nissan has a strategic link with JetCharge, an Australian company who manufacture charging equipment and programs to help run the systems as seamlessly as possible. I caught up with JetCharge's CEO, Tim Washington, and began by asking him how long a leaf could run my house. Probably a week. Really? <laughs> um, if you're being conservative, but I, I, think, I think you could safely say it could run your house probably for about three days. The thing is that I might choose to run the house off the car battery only at peak times. Is that where I would make the greatest savings? Yeah, absolutely. So even though most of us have access to what's called time of use tariffs, a lot of us don't um, use that tariff structure. And that's because most of us don't have the means to offset peak power usage, oh, sorry, power usage during peak times. But with an electric car that's capable of doing vehicle-to-grid, you can essentially halve your electricity bill by going to a time-of-use tariff because all the times when you know electricity is quite expensive under that tariff, you're using your car and not using the grid and you're charging up the car from the grid during off-peak periods, which are normally between 11, and 16, 11 o'clock at night and 6 in the morning. So I could charge between then and then use my car battery when I get the family going in the morning with hair dryers and kettles and, and all those sorts of things. That's exactly right. And the aim for companies like us is to deploy systems in homes and in buildings where all of this will happen without you really needing to think about it. So the idea is not, you know, you need to make a conscious decision to turn the charger on or drain the battery now or charge the car. All of those things will be automated um, after an initial setup and you can just go about your daily business but when you get your electricity bill it'll be much lower than what you expected. You've described what it might mean to me in terms of the day-to-day -day running of my house. You mentioned emergency support services. How could they benefit or use this particular system? So in Japan, for example, as part of their emergency response to various events, they actually drive to the emergency services crew on top of their normal special, specially purpose-built vehicles, you know, like fire engines and ambulances, etc. They actually drive fleets of Nissan Leafs to emergency sites and provide power to the site. So you see all of these Nissan Leafs driving to site and then they basically get hooked up to a switchboard which then can provide power to the site as they're conducting operations there. I think that is something incredibly innovative and obviously very helpful, especially if you're going into remote areas where it's very hard to get power. You potentially could drive your power source there and power the site with the car. So it could be a police investigation where they're out in the middle of nowhere. It could be anything where you need it to have power on hand without necessarily having to cut out a generator. Absolutely, exactly. And obviously, because, you know, the leaf is a vehicle, you're driving out there because you have to drive out there anyway. It just so happens that it can also power everything you need to, like floodlights or, you know, machinery or anything like that. It's just incredible how versatile it is because otherwise, you're right, you would have to basically tow a generator. And because the batteries in these vehicles are so big and only getting bigger, you don't actually drain that much power when you're using it for those purposes so, yeah, we, we think the possibilities are endless. I've heard of trials with Nissan Leafs where basically they drive to stadiums, the old showgrounds, to provide power during peak periods. So there's a lot of innovative business models in there. I haven't thought of them all, 
that there's going to be some very smart people who take advantage of this. If I go to the football, I might offer to plug my car in to help the system rather than pay for an entry fee and get it charged up from my solar power at home. <laughs> Wouldn't you love that? Wouldn't that be fantastic? There has been a strong push to think that we won't have private ownership of cars, yet as this type of technology gets incorporated into our everyday life, might that then push back the other way that I have my own car because it is not just my car, it is my power source? I actually think that this is the elephant in the room that a lot of people don't actually see yet because it hasn't been demonstrated at a mass market scale. But the kind of experiences that we are talking about are seamless. You don't actually think about this, you just do it as habit. And so when you rely on your car to power your house, it's not just a novelty to show your friend, hey, isn't this cool? It's actually, no, no, I need my car to power my house because I'm on this tariff and if I didn't have the car, it would cost me a lot of money to power my house. I've got a routining where I go to the supermarket, I get power, I come back, I plug it in. That will really change how people view it. And Look, don't get me wrong, I believe in multimodal transport. I think the future of our kind of transportation mix is definitely a mix of different methods and a mix of different transportation technologies. But I think that for those who reckon that nobody's going to own a car in the future, that everybody is just going to use car share services or autonomous vehicles or whatever, missing this key element where the car is not necessarily just a car, that it delivers a lot more value to its owners from one car nerd to a tech nerd, Tim Washington, <laughs> yeah. I appreciate your time immensely. It's been a wonderful conversation. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Thank you. Really appreciate it. And that's Tim Washington, who is the CEO of Jet Charge, who is developing not only they have systems of the hardware to charge things, but the way we will manage it. And what that means in a world and to our whole planning is enormous in its impact and it's desperately important that we try to understand it. You're listening to Overdrive. Whether it's for a delivery van or maybe a camper van base, the Volkswagen Crafter has always been a popular choice, but now they've added something extra to make it even more special. Rob Fraser tells us what. Volkswagen have added their full motion capability to the popular crafter van. The full motion is available in all body types, including the single and dual cab chassis variants. In addition to a long list of standard and optional features, the full motion variants can be optioned with a mechanical diff lock and hill descent control. I liked my time in the crafter. The driving position was comfortable. There is a plethora of storage areas, including secure underseat storage. And for a bigger van, it drives remarkably well. It runs about a 130-kilowatt 2-litre turbo diesel engine, an 8-speed automatic. The full-motion variants of the Volkswagen Crafter range are on sale now, priced from about $57,000, plus the usual on-road costs. You're listening to Overdrive. 1,900 veteran and classic cars from 150 car clubs all on display at one location. Sounds like a motoring enthusiast's ideal of heaven. If not, it's pretty close. It's going to happen at the Sydney Motorsport Park at Eastern Creek on the 18th of August. It's the regular Shannon's Classic 
And the chief organiser is Terry Thompson, who has done so much for motoring and motorsport over the years. He was awarded an OAM, Medal of the Order of Australia, in 2003 for services rendered to historic motoring and motorsport. And he joins us on the line now. Terry, thanks very much for your time. Hi, David. How are you? I'm very well. The Shannon's Classic on the 18th of August, the display of cars. Which ones qualify? Right the way through from the Veteran Car Club itself, which is cars made before 1918 or 1919, right the way through the Jaguar Club, the Rolls-Royce Club, etc., have modern-day vehicles as well as all the old stuff. So okay. the clubs, are um, it's up to them what they accept. Uh, we just um, bring them on board and keep them all as informed as we possibly can about what's happening in the movement. Motorcycles? Very much motorcycles, yes. Yes, Macquarie Towns. Motorcycle um, Club is one of the largest around, I think, on that conditional registration we were referring to before. I gather their members have about 500 motorcycles on that scheme. Some of the highlights of the show, what's going to be the oldest car? I think it'll be um, in the Concours event, um, David Berthon has entered his 1913 Rolls-Royce, which is a superb vehicle that has already won awards. And uh, he's bringing it out, so he will more than likely pick up a trophy there. There'll be all sorts. There's naturally a whole bunch of birthdays coming up The uh, the right the way through. The Mini is 60 years old uh, this year. The Fiat Car Club is 70 years old. There's centenaries for the Armstrong Sidley and the Elvis, uh, 100 years old. Wow. And uh, on it goes. The Boss Mustang is 50 years old. This, the Mac One, my, yeah, that, there's a is that right? Sweet chicka, yes. I looked at your list and noticed that it was 60 years ago that the Triumph Herald and some of the Jaguars, the legendary Mark II and the big Mark Nine. Yet only 10 years later, there was these wonderfully modern sports cars, the Datsun 240Z and, and the Australian Bolwell Nagari. Bolwell, where did that come from and I guess why did it die? Well, the Bolwell brothers started themselves up in Melbourne and started uh, decided they could build motor cars. They first built kit cars that you grabbed yourself an FJ Holden and took all the mechanicals out of it and bolted it into one of their body shells and you had yourself a very sexy looking sports car. But the Nagari, they decided they'd build it themselves, and it uh, it had a 302, or, and later on a 351 Ford V8, which made it a very potent motor car. What else is going to happen out on the 18th of August? Well, all of the cars, all 1,900 of them, get the opportunity to do a tour of the track. We take a group of 100 out every 15 minutes, so it's just non-stop touring of all sorts of cars going around the track. You might look up and see anything from a... Um, double-decker bus travelling around and carrying passengers right down to Godmobile darts and uh, Messerschmitts and things like that from the Micro Car and Scooter Club. So we have the whole range um, of vehicles and they're all on the move, which is one thing I've always loved about this event, isn't it? We, we, it's not a cold radiator day. Everybody doesn't just sit there in the paddock and look at one another. They actually get in their cars and we take them out on the track for a bit of a tour. How do I get to go round in one of the buses as a passenger? Ah, it's a simple gold coin uh, donation to the Bus and Truck Museum, which is over at Leichhardt. They'll be there on the day. They'll welcome you aboard in their surge, uh, blue surge uniforms and hats. And um, you can climb up the front and sit right up the front of an old green and yellow Albion and uh, just make a small 
donation to the, the museum and they'll take you for a trip around the track. It's it's a fantastic thing. In fact, the the Albions apparently clear the bridge over the back of the racetrack by 200 millimetres. It's a wonderful memory and it's fantastic that you make such an effort to give us the chance to be able to relive that or to see it for the first time. Terry, I really appreciate your efforts and thanks for your time now. Thank you, David. And that was Terry Thompson, who is the President of the Australian Confederation of Motor Clubs and who is the Chief Organiser for the Shannons Classic, which is on at the Sydney Motorsport Park Raceway at Eastern Creek on the 18th of August. This is Overdrive across Australia. David Brown's been testing the first car he would buy if he had a lot of money. And it's definitely not what I expected. The car of my dreams. Not those exotic dreams of a convertible supercar slicing through the French countryside on the way to my penthouse on the Riviera. Rather those dreams of going through the everyday parts of life where the car does not cause hassles. My dream car, well, the car to avoid nightmares, is Australia's most popular people mover. The Kia Carnival. Feels like an airy lounge room with a third row of seats you can use for more than just children with acutely short legs. And huge secure space for anything from skis to a children's bike. Surprisingly powerful, but not for inner city living, but great for a family and their junk. You're listening to Overdrive. And here we are again. We had him back with us finally last week, and now we have him back again. It's Brian Smith to talk some quirky news. Good day, Brian. Good day, David. Tell me about red light in city areas. Ah, oh, this steams me up, David. This story I'm going to talk to you about is more about our perception of what matters. So the headline is CBD drivers could spend more time at red lights under council plan. And the story is Melbourne planning to change the traffic signal phasing system to benefit pedestrians. And not just to benefit pedestrians, but to benefit the fact that there's something like five times as many people on foot as there are in cars in particularly congested areas. And they're talking here about one intersection being the intersection of Spencer and Collins Street, right outside Southern Cross Railway Station, uh, where something like 15,000 pedestrians cross the road per hour, which is five times the number of people in cars, but cars are given twice the amount of time as pedestrians. So so my take on this is, um, you know, Melbourne's plan to improve the way the city works, but it's projected forward as being... CBD drivers having to spend more time at red lights. This gets my goat. But the the interesting thing is that uh, a colleague of ours and, and the RACVC Senior Manager of Transport and Planning, Peter Katsudimus, he, he's taking the perspective that, look, uh, traffic light timing reviews are a good thing. If we optimise it, then everybody moves through the city quicker. And if most people are on foot, it makes sense that if we're going to use the infrastructure of our city most efficiently, we should benefit the people who have the least impact and move the most number of people in the fewest number of vehicles. David? 
So you really would like to write the news story with a positive headline? Yes, yes. Instead of saying, look, you car drivers, you're going to be disadvantaged. The car drivers are the minority here. And, and uh, it's not about positive or negative. It's saying that um, we immediately think in terms of cars and saying, what does this mean for cars? Why not pedestrians will have their wait times halved because that's the effect of it. I think right, it's uh, also shock horror sort of stuff. You you wanted to write a positive headline, you'll never work for News Corp. <laughs> That's true. I'd have to find some way to fit someone getting injured into this, wouldn't I? Or humiliated. One of the issues there is, of course, also trams, though. What sort of speed are we allowing the trams to go by? I don't think that should stop us. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that you want to make sure that really you not only don't serve cars as well, but you actually discourage them from doing it if they can avoid it. Speaking of trams, um, the international standard for the percent of time trams should be caught at red lights is about 2 to 5%. Oh. Uh, and at the moment in Melbourne, trams spend about 20% of their time on their trip. At red lights, so there's a lot more that can be done uh, in that city to, to I guess, make it work more efficiently. They had a graph there that 43 percent of total traffic was through traffic, but I have to say that was on a fairly small area, which makes it not surprising that a lot of traffic is through. But nonetheless, it makes the point, doesn't it, that within that tight inner core, a lot of the people that are on the street aren't going to a location nearby on that same street. Yeah, they're passing through the heart of a city centre on their way to somewhere else. So that's a bit of a flaw in the way the, the network functions, or more importantly, um, how people are charged to use the network. So at the moment, we're pretty lax in the way that we uh, value accessibility like this. We say, sure, just drive. You're not going to actually be asked to pay anything. No one's going to ask whether your trip is important or not or whether, you know, you, you're carrying five people or only one. Uh, and, and this is this kind of thinking around congestion charging that would say, well, you know, if we're going to charge people to come into the most intensely contested part of our city, then um, we should uh, uh, use a price signal to, to ration that space. And someone who is just passing through the city may well say, well, look, I don't need to go through the city. It's going to cost me more. Ryan, as always, it's great to talk to you. Thank you once again for all your time. Thank you, David. Brian Smith, and we were talking some quirky news here on Overdrive. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to David Campbell, Brian Smith, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for doing the hard yards in supporting this program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course you can go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.